of a dyke and said, Shakyamuni Buddha looked up and saw the morning star and exclaimed, I and all beings at this moment, sorry, now I see that all beings are the Tathagata. It is just their delusions and attachments that prevent them from bearing witness to it. Place it comfortably within the limit of your mat. Here we are celebrating uh, the enlightenment of uh, Shakyamuni Buddha. Um, what do we really know about it? Probably very little. Um, uh, the story of him looking up and seeing the morning star is a, is a great foundation uh, myth, um, providing us with the deepest encouragement to awaken and confirm who we truly are and always have been, um, and to walk the way into our lives. What it has to do with literal truth, uh, it's hard to say. The story takes a thousand years to generate. There's hundreds of years between this statement from the Indian tradition. When the morning star appeared, the clear, embracing, great awakening took place. He obtained the supreme and true Tao and completed the highest perfect enlightenment. Okay. Centuries later, uh, Shakyamuni looked up and saw the morning star and said. Um, so it grows very, very slowly. Um, uh, uh, later on in the 8th to 9th century, uh, therefore the world-honoured one, as soon as he had attained his true awakening, exclaimed, how wonderful I now universally observe that all sentient beings are endowed with the Tathagata's intrinsic wisdom and virtuous characteristics. Um, and then much, much later in the uh, uh, 11th and 12th century, uh, Da Hui, which gives roughly its current or one of the current forms of the story, Old Shakya, when he was at the foot of the mountain of true awakening, on lifting up his head and seeing the morning star appeared, suddenly awakened to Tao. Thereupon he said with surprise, how wonderful, all sentient beings are endowed with the intrinsic wisdom and virtuous characteristics of the Tathagata. Only because they cling to their deluded thinking are they not able to prove this. So that final uh, thing about delusions and attachments um, it's like 500, um, I don't know, 1700 years after uh, the original. So it's very slow growing, but very, very powerful um, and pervasive. Um, and who cares about the literal truth in a way? It's, it's there to inspire uh, you in your practice. This celebration of Shakyamuni Buddha's enlightenment is a celebration of your enlightenment. It only has a meaning in those terms. Yeah, in that moment of awakening, what did Shakyamuni Buddha realise? What was it that had him sweepingly exclaim that he and all beings, including uh, you and me, in that instant had attained the way? 
But let's explore a little the legend of the Buddha's enlightenment. Again, we don't seek literal historical truths, but those great uh, archetypal themes to guide and inspire our practice. Um, I'm drawing on the writings here of uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's uh, wonderful at uh, presenting the Buddha's life. Um, it comes from uh, the Buddha and his Dharma. Um, Once upon a time, or some two and a half thousand years ago, Prince Siddhartha was born into the noble family of the Shakya clan at Kapilavastu, located in the ancient Shakya kingdom, which is today part of Nepal. It was foretold that Prince Siddhartha would be a great ruler or a great spiritual teacher. His father, perhaps understandably, decided that he would be a great ruler, and in this, undoubtedly, his successor. As a royal youth, Prince Siddhartha was raised in luxury. His father had built for him three palaces, one for each season of the year, of the Shakya year, um, and there he enjoyed himself in the company of his friends. At the age of 16, he married his cousin, a beautiful princess named Yasodhara, and lived a contented life in the Shakyan capital, Kapilivastu. During this time, he was probably trained in the martial arts and the skills of statecraft. It seems that the genie that could grant an infinity of wishes was at his command. However, hedonism, like asceticism, can be a tough path. I don't have a lot of experience of hedonism, but I can imagine on a large scale it's hard going. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, the boredom of excess, the distractions of power, and uh, yeah, I guess the owner's responsibilities. I don't know, being a crown prince, maybe not. Uh, maybe those owner's responsibilities come later. However, when he reached his late 20s, the prince became increasingly introspective. What troubled him were questions concerning the purpose and meaning of life. Is the purpose of our existence the enjoyment of sensual pleasures, the achievement of wealth and status, the exercise of power? Or is there something beyond these that is inherently more real and fulfilling? Such questions obsessed him. Uh, from time to time, he escapes from the palace. Um, he had a good friend, a charioteer, so I think the two of them would head off into town under cover of darkness. So he'd been kind of walled up by his father, uh, presumably to protect him from the raw realities of the world and life in it. On his surreptitious visits to the world outside, uh, he encountered an old person, a sick person, and a dead person, a corpse. It's hard to imagine that, that he was ignorant of these uh, such basic facts of life. Um, uh, insight into death can start early. Uh, my daughter, Amanda, told me that her auntie Margaret died of lung cancer. Her death occurred at 3am. The undertaker came and uh, put her in the coffin so that Daryl, her husband, could sit with her. 
At sunup, um, the undertakers came and collected the coffin and, um, and put it in the vehicle. My three-year-old granddaughter Charlotte, commenting on this, said, <coughs> in the morning the sun came up and she left the house and she felt much better. <laughs> so kind of no birth and death, no ending of birth and death. After the encounter with an old person, a sick person, a dead person, Shakyamuni finally encountered a monk and glimpsed the destiny, his destiny in that meeting. There are four signs and from these signs he intuits and knows in his deepest being what he must do. At such moments, we also know in our heart, we know overwhelmingly what we must do. Uh, each of us has such moments in our life where, in a sense, our future often just rests on one decision in one moment. We make our hugest decisions, most important ones, often in that kind of way as well. Um, yeah, decisions whether to enter a major relationship, to get married, to have children, um, yeah, each or any, to embark on a spiritual path. It's been said that Shakyamuni's Khan surely must have been, why do we suffer? Is there liberation? suffering. If so, uh, what is that liberation from suffering? Why do we suffer? In terms of the Mahayana, we suffer because we are ignorant of the nature of reality and our relation to it. In particular, we suffer because we are caught up in dualistic conceptions of self and other. In Theravadan traditions, it's, uh, this is grounded more in craving. Um, in Mahayana traditions, more in ignorance, or sometimes translated as delusion. So dualistic conceptions of self and other. Uh, this can be briefly framed as, um, I am in here and you are out there. As simply as that. Haku and Yasutani um, call this the fundamental delusion of humanity. Inherently, we each and all share in the Buddha's enlightenment, which is the deep, at the deepest level also our own. But the tangled forest of our delusions and attachments regarding who we are and our relationship to the world shuts out the vastness of our true nature and prevents us from bearing witness uh, to it, to living it. So our suffering arises from our ignorance regarding the nature of reality and our relation to it. And if this is different from the delusions and attachments that spring from Ignorance. So why do we suffer? In investigating this profound question, Shakyamuni did what he had to and entered uh, the heroic quest. 
He started with the study of the philosophies and meditation systems of his day. Leaving behind his home and family, he headed south for Magadar uh, in present-day Bihar, in whose environs small groups of seekers were quietly pursuing their quest for a spiritual illumination, usually under the guidance of a guru. At the time, northern India could boast of a number of accomplished masters famous for their philosophical systems and achievements in meditation. He sought out two of the most eminent, Alara Kalama and Vidaka Ramaputta. From them he learned systems of meditation which from the descriptions in the texts seem to have been forerunners of Raja Yoga. The Buddha mastered their teachings and systems of meditation but though he reached exalted levels of concentration or samadhi, he found these teachings insufficient for they did not lead to the goal he was seeking. Perfect enlightenment and the realisation of nirvana, released from the sufferings of sentient existence. In the eyes of his teacher, he became the prince of philosophers, the prince of meditators. Uh, this is stage one in this archetypal journey of mastering the way. Mastering the techniques, um, discovering the philosophy of the way. And we can identify with this in our, our own practice, different from the ones described here. But uh, uh, learning to count the breath, learning to focus, um, learning to concentrate, immensely important. In these days where mindfulness has such ascendancy, concentration is very backgrounded. But concentration is immensely important for life. Not enough, perhaps, in its own right, but hugely important. So I send students, um, it's, it's a practice which is so much more engaged at times. I'm not trying to make invidious comparisons here, but um, because you can concentrate and focus, uh, you can actually be with difficult stuff. You know, it's a kind of like a ground for practice, for, uh, for being with um, the vast range of experiences that we have. Stage two, austerities, sacrifices, accepting challenges. Shakyamuni then spent six years with the ascetics practicing austerities in order to achieve enlightenment. Living on a little more than a grain of rice a day, he almost died. Uh, we can't identify with this, but we do identify with a kind of natural asceticism that comes when we do practice uh, the way. Um, I mean... You know, maybe uh, not uh, not watching as much television, not being well. I'm going to say computers. Maybe that's another story. But um, there is something that uh, that yearns for simplicity, and I think we often do make moves in our lives towards simplifying. Um, given the culture we live in, these simplicities are not on the Buddha scale. But I think we can identify um, with that part of the quest. So he almost dies. Out of this near catastrophe comes the middle way, which avoids the extremes of sensual indulgence on one hand and self-mortification on the other. Both of these are just so um, submerged in ego, both of those positions, uh, both self-mortification uh, and the indulgence, if you will. 
He had experienced both extremes, the former as a prince and the latter as an ascetic, and in terms of his quest, he knew they were ultimately dead ends. His trajectory had been from riches to rags. Um, so often in our times, it's rag to, rags to riches. We're, we're like a cork out of a champagne bottle, flying ahead of, trying to fly ahead of our karma until the wheels start to come off in middle life. Um, so, uh, the archetypal pattern runs the other way, but uh, yeah. The middle way can be considered as the mean between extremes. Um, getting, like getting a guitar string in tune, not too tight, not loose either, uh, just right on, on pitch. And we, to some extent, we live this in our lives. Um, how angry do we need to get? Um, do we need to get angry at all? Uh, how long will we carry that anger? Uh, uh, till uh, lunchtime? Uh, till Christmas? Till next year? Uh, those adjustments we make all of the time. Um, trying to find a, a middle way. How committed to this cause do I need to be? Do I need to commit to it at all? Uh, this is the kind of energy that I can give to it. The middle way is, has a more profound sense. Um, a middle way is often expressed as because this is you are. Uh, if you raise the matter of time, uh, timelessness appears. Uh, I am because you are. That is middle way. Dogen wrote, the middle way is in fact a radical leaping clear of the one and the many. So when it says that uh, you know, the Buddha was seeking the, the middle way, um, this is stepping beyond those, the horns of the dilemma of the one and the many. In this case, if you like, between sensuous indulgence and um, asceticism. But you can give the horns of the dilemma can be many different things. However, to achieve the middle way, whatever it was, Shakyamuni realised that he would first have to regain his strength. Thus he, got, he gave up his practice of austerities and returned to taking nutritious food. The story goes that a girl from the village, whose name was Sujata, discovering him at the point of death, gave him milk and rice to revive him and continued doing this until his strength returned. At the time... Five, the five other ascetics who'd been living in attendance on him, hoping that he would attain enlightenment and be their guide. Um, when they saw him partake of substantial meals, they became disgusted with him and left him, thinking the princely ascetic had given up his exertion and reverted to a life of luxury. Shakyamuni thus restored, undertook to awaken and to finally find uh, liberation. In his quest, he got support uh, from the children of the nearby village, including Sujata, um, who continued to feed him, and the buffalo boy, whose name was Svasti, 
who brought him fresh kusa grass to sit on, uh, thus creating an early form of the zafu. Shakyamuni vowed not to rise until he had awakened. He spent 49 days and nights of hard sitting. During that time, he experienced the temptations of Mara, sexual enticements and the enticements of great power. This was surely old stuff to him, but uh, we're all vulnerable in our way. Mara asked uh, on whose authority he could sit beneath the Bodhi tree. He called on the earth to bear witness to his right to be sitting there. Some accounts give that the earth uh, called on to bear witness, uh, roaring its approval of him sitting there. But there's a more subtle response from Shakyamuni Buddha to that. I just touched earth. On the final night, as dusk became darkness, he entered into deeper and deeper stages of meditation until his mind was perfectly calm and composed. Then the old records tell us, in the first watch of the night, he directed his concentration, concentrated mind to the recollection of his previous lives. Gradually there unfolded before his inner vision his experience in many past births, even during many cosmic eons. In the middle watch of the night, he developed the divine eye by which he could see beings passing away and taking rebirth in accordance with their karma, their deeds. In the last watch of the night, he penetrated the deepest truths of existence, the most basic laws of reality, and thereby removed from his mind the subtlest veils of ignorance. And then at dawn, he looked up and saw the morning star, and exclaimed, Now I see that all beings are the Tathagata. Now I see that all beings are this. Uh, this one that does not come and go. Tathagata is all tied up with that thing. Uh, the one who does not come and go. Now I see all beings are this one. It's not, I see that I am all beings. How tepid that sounds in comparison and how tepid it is. Now I see that all beings are this one. It is not my agency at all. Uh, it's entirely, freely, utterly, timelessly given. beyond any grasping or wishing or willing or anything of that kind. Now I see that all beings are this one. Not me, or I myself, or any of that. This one. It is just their delusions and attachments that prevent them from bearing witness to it. So, um, who are you right now?
you know, when you awaken, uh, it feels ancient, but it is as fresh as this moment of right now. Listen. whole world walks through your heart as your heart. Arthur Wells says regarding this, there is a sense of ancestral presence and though you can't say how your experience keeps grand company. Women says, the hair of your eyebrow regarding the, you and the ancient teacher, you and Shakyamuni Buddha, the hair of your eyebrows entangled with his, uh, seeing with the same eyes, hearing with the same ears. That kind of intimacy. In a way, nothing is added. When you awaken, uh, you find that that star has always been shining. That the moon uh, has always been shining there. Nisargadatta said, when I look inside and see that I am nothing, uh, that is wisdom. When I look outside and see that I am everything, that's love. Uh, Prashnatara, who taught uh, Bodhidharma, uh, the last of the um, great Indian ancestors, second last, who taught Bodhidharma, was a woman, we understand now. The whole culmination of the 28 generations after the Buddha uh, culminates in a, a great woman teacher um, who confirmed, taught helped to bring about the realisation and confirmed the realisation of Bodhidharma who brought the Dharma to China uh, and began the Chan tradition there. Um, I love the fact that in our sutras uh, we have this line, um, the Buddha and his teachers and her many sons and daughters interpolated there many years ago uh, by women who felt very strongly about this matter. Um, but we talk about, now I see that all beings are the Buddha. Uh, Buddha is woman, Buddha is man. It's good that we celebrate that. It makes my heart um, swell every time I hear it in the sutras. For several weeks, the newly awakened Buddha remained in the vicinity of the Bodhi tree, contemplating from different angles the Dharma and the truth that he had discovered, and enjoying the bliss of intimacy with just this. Then a voice began to intrude, saying, There are people out there with only a little dust in their eyes. Would he share his experience of release from suffering with others? Or would he remain quietly in the forest 
uh, enjoying the bliss of liberation alone. Well, I for one am grateful that he came down from that lonely hill out of Magadar and spent for some 48 years uh, walking the back roads of India for the sake of those with only a little dust in their eyes, as that prompting voice said, surely it would be okay to come down and give them a hand. Yeah, what do we learn from his quest? Stickability, determination, devotion, keeping right on regardless. It's an exemplary uh, story. And in its own way, it's the story of each of us. Hanging in there on this very warm afternoon, this great Sasenkai. Robert Aiken asked a priest, um, what if it could be proved that Jesus never existed? The priest said, my faith would be destroyed. The priest then asked Robert Aiken, if the Buddha hadn't lived, what difference would it make to you? Aiken Roshi said, well, maybe perhaps not much. Uh, why not? Once you've truly realised, you recognise the Buddha's awakening as your own. It's like drinking water and knowing whether it is cold or hot. It's like knowing whether it's from the tank or from the tap. However, that experience is actually universal, uh, predating Shakyamuni and outlasting us, Zen in the West and all of the rest. Yet we express our boundless gratitude and our love for Shakyamuni for his exemplary courage, stickability, his stopping at nothing. And finally, his decision not to let his awakening remain a private ecstasy on some remote hill out of Magadar. We call this Buddha's Enlightenment Day. Actually, it's the eighth, but the fifth, uh, for our purposes, close enough. But actually, it's your Enlightenment Day. Who or what are you? <laughs>